Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of July 9th, 2018. On this week's show, Grant Wall of Sports Illustrated and Fox Sports will join us from Moscow to talk about the week that was in the World Cup and the upcoming semifinals between Belgium and France and England and Croatia. We'll also be joined by the New Yorker's Vincent Cunningham for a conversation about his piece headlined, Stephen A. Smith Won't Stop Talking. And finally, Sports Illustrated's John Wertheim will be here to chat about the documentary Strokes of Genius on the epic 2008 Wimbledon final between Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. Stefan Fatsis is in Iceland this week, where he is hopefully watching soccer games in gas stations. Filling in for him is the head of Hang Up and Listen's Oakland Bureau, Slate contributing writer Nick Green. How's it going, Nick? Hi, I'm doing great. How are you doing, Josh? Good. Um, Icelandic gas station is sort of the vibe that we're going for on this show, but like your house in Oakland will suffice for today. Well, that well, that's actually my um, interior design uh, theme. It's uh, my yeah, my my inspiration is an Icelandic gas station. All right, perfect. I will be imagining that as we uh, lead into our first segment here. Uh, the semifinal stage of the World Cup is upon us. And it is going to be a very good semifinal stage. On Tuesday, we're going to get Belgium and France, both of which have insanely talented rosters and have the feel of deserving tournament winners. And then on Wednesday, we've got England versus Croatia and all the drama of the English trying to overcome their Englishness, while the brilliant Luka Modric tries to lead his Croatian squad to the final in what will likely be his last World Cup. To discuss those upcoming games and the games of the recent past, let's bring in Grant Wall, who's joining us from Moscow. Grant writes about soccer for Sports Illustrated, talks about it on Fox Sports TV and in his Planet Football podcast. He's also the author of the book, Masters of Modern Soccer, How the World's Best Play the 21st Century Game. Welcome, Grant. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I want to start with Belgium because two of the main... Uh, figures in your book were Vincent Company, the defender, and coach Roberto Martinez. Uh, this is an incredibly talented roster and one where the players seem to mesh together despite having different playing styles and different backgrounds. Can you give us a bit of a behind-the-scenes look at what makes this team work? They have a tremendous amount of talent individually on this Belgian team, and the term you always hear in the soccer world is golden generation, but That is definitely true, but they had also underperformed as a national team in many ways uh, over the years, and it was actually a disappointment for Belgium when it only got to the quarterfinals of the last World Cup and went out in the quarterfinals of Euro 2016 against Wales. And then Martinez came in with what he talked about as the goal to make this team uh, better than the sum of its parts, because that hasn't been the case in recent years. And company talked a lot about how potential is one thing, but they had never actually won anything. 
and really needed to find a chemistry as a team in this World Cup. And it really seems like they found it, um, you know, just in terms of the way they play together and they have blended different styles uh, of their star players, many of whom play in the English Premier League, um, but also have gotten results. Uh, and they're just tremendously entertaining to watch. Uh, the front three of De Bruyne, Lukaku, and Hazard, has, they've just been absolutely terrific. And Martinez, I thought, made a smart move in the game against Brazil in the quarterfinal by uh, moving De Bruyne higher up the field from the midfield to a winger position. And, uh, and he was fantastic in that game. I wanted to ask you about that front three of uh, Lukaku, De Bruyne, and, and Hazard. Of those three players, which um, who has impressed you the most? Who has like, shown you kind of form that's gone above and beyond their Premier League uh, performances? You know, they've all three sort of done, done it in different ways in this tournament. Um, you know, you look at Lukaku, and he's actually missed several scoring chances in the tournament, and yet he's been really, really good in other ways on their late breakaway, you know, counter goal to to beat Japan three to two, maybe the most thrilling goal of the tournament in some ways. Lukaku didn't even touch the ball, and yet he did so many other things on that play to help create the goal, twice making runs to create space for other Belgian players and then playing just an unbelievable dummy uh, in the box that Nasser Chadley ran onto and, and scored. And that type of just great vision and understanding for the game is something that Lukaku has shown quite a bit in this tournament. He's not just about athleticism. Uh, and I've really enjoyed seeing that side of his game, even if I'm sure he wishes he had scored more goals in this tournament. Uh, De Bruyne just has a, a wonderful feel for the game. Uh, and then Hazard is really a guy I was really impressed the other night. Uh, we've seen him in the Premier League over the years with Chelsea. Uh, he controls things. He calms things down. You can give him the ball in a really tough spot and he'll know what to do with it in a high pressure situation. Sometimes that involves just sort of holding it. Sometimes he'll take more of a risk uh, and advance the ball. I know the uh, one of the goals against Japan in their comeback, he created space out of nothing and then sent a ball in that uh, Fellaini headed home. And Hazard just seems to make the right decision just about every time he's on the ball. I mean, that's the guy that I've noticed. I don't watch as much Premier League as either of you guys, but, um, you know, in the Belgium game against the U.S. and the knockout round in 2014, Lukaku and De Bruyne scored goals. So obviously, if you're a fan of the U.S. men's national team, you know those guys. But I remember Hazard being kind of disappointing in that game. And and maybe, uh, Grant, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like he's the guy who's really elevated his performance in this tournament up to what it's been at club level and somebody who maybe hadn't done that in the big tournaments before. Maybe not with Belgium as much. And you're right. In 2014, uh, Hazard wasn't nearly as good as he's been in this tournament. Um, you know, they underperformed at the Euro in 2016. Uh, Thibaut Courtois, the terrific goalkeeper for Belgium, who made such a big save late against Neymar in Brazil to preserve that victory, he was publicly critical of their coach, Mark Wilmots, uh, when they went out in Euro 2016. And, uh, you know, I think Courtois in particular uh, has been very solid, very steady, has made some spectacular saves in this tournament, and you don't see him publicly criticizing uh, the coach, Martinez, or, or anything else that's going on here. And, 
um, you know, we sort of wondered how good Belgium was in the group because their group, aside from England, was pretty weak uh, with Panama and Tunisia. But we've seen in the knockout rounds against Japan and then against Brazil, uh, they are so explosive from an attacking sense. And against Brazil, they were able to shore up some of the defensive problems that allowed them to concede two goals against Japan. For their opponents, for France, what's your evaluation of how uh, Coach Didier Deschamps has been doing so far? Because I know he's gotten some criticism, but the results have obviously been there this tournament. Yeah, I mean, sometimes Deschamps is criticized for being too conservative uh, and not fully utilizing uh, the amazing talent that he has on that roster for France. Uh, But I thought he made a a move that was uh, a very good one, similar to the one that Martinez made uh, early in the tournament. Um, You know, Deschamps changed things up and put Giroud, Olivier Giroud, in as a center forward uh, with uh, Kylian Mbappe and Antoine Griezmann running off of him. And even though Giroud is a center forward, he's not really being asked to score goals in this tournament. He's really being asked to to put the ball on, you know, help get the ball to Mbappe, to Griezmann, and put them in positions to score, and uh, and really, you know, be a load to handle for the back line of wh- whatever team they're playing. So uh, I think Giroud is another guy who, in a similar way to Lukaku, doing things besides scoring goals that have been tremendously important. I think Giroud's been doing that as well. And maybe that's a little bit to do with uh, sort of the tactical trends in the game that center forwards aren't always being asked to score goals. For England, um, as Eric Betts pointed out in a piece, for Slate, they've scored eight of their 11 goals um, off of set pieces. Um, You mentioned the, you know, weak group before um you know england that you know england and and belgium were in they they landed against uh you know a colombian team that didn't have james rodriguez a swedish team that is you know sweden they're not like one of the the top nations soccer playing nations in the world um i'm wondering grant if you think that this english team truly is different or if this is a case of them getting a lucky draw and maybe not being as like supremely talented as the other teams that we've talked about so far. Well, we'll find out uh, in you know the next couple of games if England really can hang with the other three semifinalists. You know, I I'm actually pretty you know feeling pretty positive about this England team. They are a younger team than previous England teams. They're very likable in a way that not all previous England teams have been, uh, and they really play well together. Uh, and, you know, the set-piece goals I look at as uh, a, a really impressive achievement of their coach, Gareth Southgate, and his staff, who have clearly spent so much time preparing uh, set-piece routines, uh, getting players to work together on sort of you know, combinations, patterns uh, that help, you know, lead to these types of goals. Um, and, you know, when we started this tournament, I remember looking at the bracket and thinking, you know, England and Germany were on a collision course to meet in the quarterfinals. And Germany didn't do its part to get there. And the defending champions went out in the group stage. They were pretty poor. And England did its job. They got to that quarterfinal. It happened to be Sweden that they faced instead. But I don't think England owes anyone any apologies for uh, for Germany not making it there. Uh, so you play you know, who you can, you know, who's in front of you. 
And uh, we'll find out, I think, a little more about this England team in the semifinal against Croatia because uh, at times in this tournament, I thought in the group stage, Croatia was the best of the 32 teams just based on on-field performance. And and actually, Croatia hasn't been as good uh, the last couple of knockout r- uh, round games, but they've been good enough to advance uh, against Denmark and then against Russia. But, uh, you know, right now, I think it's a pretty even matchup heading into this semifinal, and we could actually see England get to a World Cup final. Yeah, I didn't mean to say that, like, preparation is for nerds or anything like that. It's just that <laughs> Eng- it is. England <laughs> it is. England just hasn't been as impressive or creative during open play as the other teams in this tournament, I think it's fair to say. And that piece I mentioned, Eric Betts wrote that their <laughs> offense is more like the illusion of offense than the actual thing, like a man sticking his finger in his coat pocket and pretending it's a gun. I thought that was a a clever line. But I think there might actually be some self-loathing here for me because when I watch England play, what I think is if the U.S. men's national team is ever really good, like this is how they're going to be good. Like there's nobody on the field for England who you're like totally blown away by from a skill standpoint, but they – are like really solid. They play well together. They're extremely well prepared and they do have some skill, but it just looks to me like this is the best possible version of the U.S. men's national team. Yeah, I think there's something to that. You know, if you look back at like the 2002 Men's World Cup when the U.S. men got to the quarterfinals, uh, that's sort of how they played, you know, and uh, there's nothing wrong with being a team that is really hard to play against, that does well on set pieces, Um you know, and occasionally scores goals out of the run of play. The goals all count the same. And and I do think in sometimes in the soccer world, people look down at set-piece goals. Uh, but my, I have a whole story on set-piece goals uh, in this tournament in Sports Illustrated magazine this week. And, um, you know, it's something that more and more uh, people in the sport, not just national teams, but but also at club level, are hiring set-piece specialists to try and maximize the possibility of scoring as many goals as possible over the course of a season or a tournament uh, with set-pieces. Because, you know, about 20 to 30% of all goals typically come off set-pieces. And it's a, an area of the game that hasn't been... Um, there's been a lot of inefficiencies over the years, and, and it hasn't been maximized. And now teams that are are really working at doing that are, are benefiting. Set piece specialist is a good job for you, Nick, if the writing thing doesn't work out. <laughs> I'm already working on it. Um, so for uh, Croatia, they've won um, two penalty shootouts in a row. Um, so my data says that if uh, their match against England goes to penalties, they're due to lose one. <laughs> However, my data also says that England is England. Um, so do you think that Croatia has any unique skill that if this does go to penalties that England should be worried? Or do you think that uh, this is going to be figured out in regulation? You know, I mean, the chances are that you won't be seeing Croatia go to a third straight penalty shootout. Uh, it's, it's certainly possible. We've seen quite a few of them in the knockout rounds. And uh, Subasic, the Croatian goalkeeper, is absolutely terrific at stopping penalties. Uh, is he so- okay? Is his hamstring okay, do you know? Yeah, there's some questions. Um you know, I don't know the answer to that yet. I think it's going to be a pretty big talking point heading into the semifinal against England. Um, but it was pretty amazing. You know, it looked like he had pulled his hamstring late in the game against Russia. Maybe it was just a cramp. But whatever it was, he went from looking like he wasn't going to be able to continue to not only continuing, but doing very well in the shootout. Um, 
And, you know, he was terrific in the, the shootout against Denmark in the round of 16. So, you know, I think that's, uh, it's nice to have a, a hot goalkeeper in a situation like that. Jordan Pickford, the England goalkeeper, uh, did really well in the shootout against Colombia. That was the first time England had ever won a penalty shootout at a World Cup. And, uh, you know, just to see typical England fans who are, you know, usually pretty pessimistic, especially about penalties and in their <laughs> pretty response, pessimistic. <laughs> uh, in, in, you know, in their Not response, about life too. Uh, I'm working with, you know, several uh, folks from England uh, here at Fox, you know, with Fox Sports at the World Cup, and they're sort of, they found this new optimism, which is jarring. So oh, they're getting set up. Oh, this is going to be bad. The, it is, it is going to be bad. I also like to see Luka Modric happy. He's got like a really good post-game smiley face. And so I wouldn't mind seeing that again. Plus, he's just a great player. And I like to, to see the great players who haven't won before get yeah, uh, the chance probably to, with to the, hoist the cup. The best midfielder in the world, I, w- I would say at this point. And that's actually been that way for a while. And yet, maybe it's because at Real Madrid... Cristiano Ronaldo has sucked so much of the oxygen out of the place that... Modric almost feels underrated, even though he plays for Real Madrid and is in a World Cup semifinal. And I kind of feel that way about Ivan Rakitic, his teammate, even though he plays for Barcelona. So, um, you know, I think we're seeing these guys who, you know, are just such a talented generation that Croatia has had, uh, you know, fully realizing what we thought they might be able to do. Grant Wall writes about soccer for Sports Illustrated. He is also a correspondent for Fox Sports. He has a podcast, Planet Football, and he's the author of the book, Masters of Modern Soccer, How the World's Best Play the 21st Century Game. Grant Wall, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Good talking to you. Before we get to Stephen A. Smith, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Christina Cotarucci will join us for a lesson on how to say goal for a very long time. Nick, I'm not going to say goal for very long now because I want to save my breath for the bonus segment, I would suggest that you do the same. <clears throat> yeah, God, I'm not going to say anything to save my, my voice. It's the last thing I'm saying. <laughs> Christina can say goal for 40 seconds. I just want to warn people. Just be prepared to uh, put on your listening ears. If you want to hear that conversation. <laughs> I thought you weren't going to say anything, Nick. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, right. That's it. Pearl Diver. Last, last one. If you want to hear that conversation, you should join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, it's Josh, your friend from the podcast. Just a note that due to a technical issue, Nick is going to sound slightly different for the rest of the podcast from how he did in the first segment. So don't be alarmed or be alarmed. It's up to you. But just noting that difference. What? Oh my, you should be banned from talking basketball. That is blasphemous. I'm calling you out. I'm so sick of these people. You know, oh. That man you just heard, and boy, did you just hear him, was Stephen A. Smith. Stephen A., who started out as a print journalist, has been a TV pundit since the late 90s, most famously and enduringly 
as a panelist on various ESPN debate shows. His main gig currently is First Take, on which he debates the news and non-news of the day with Skip Bayless's replacement, Max Kellerman, for two hours every weekday morning. In Vincent Cunningham's recent profile of Smith for The New Yorker headlined, Stephen A. Smith Won't Stop Talking, the subject said that his job is to be enough of a personality that they, meaning the audience, want to know what you think. Joining us now to talk about the man, the personality, and his job is Vincent Cunningham, who's a staff writer for The New Yorker. Vincent, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, and I think partly because of the existence of your profile, it feels to me like we're in the strange new respect phase of Stephen right. A. Smith's <laughs> career. There are certainly a lot of people who think you represents the ruination of sports television and the vacuousness of the Embrace Debate era. But I also think it's possible to put that aside and just appreciate what an amazing performer he is, because at least for me, as somebody who talks once a week and doesn't have the same kind of uh, verbal felicity and command of my voice that he has, I just marvel at what it is that he's able to do every day. Yeah, I mean, you're right that we have sort of passed into a new dispensation of sort of Smith appreciation, but I think it's not just that he's so amazing. I think he's also angled himself, um, interestingly, especially since uh, Skip Bayless left the show for uh, for the Pastors at Fox Sports 1, right? Like, I think he's embraced more, obviously, the sort of camp aspects of his job, which I think those of us who I, I like, I actually watch this show. Like uh, people ask me if it's ironic and it's no, because I think that Stephen A. Smith is like an opera performer. He's amazing. And he makes me laugh a lot. Um, and so I think he's downplayed the parts of him that were more toxic and allowed us, I think to appreciate, as you say, the, just his, his skills as a performer, which are, as you say, amazing. The guy talks for like four hours a day, every single day. I'm curious just of how you pitch this, profile to your your editors how much explaining of Stephen a had to go into it or were they already familiar with his uh his body of work luckily my editor is as big a sports fan and as big a sports media fan as i am uh he knows who Stephen a is and i've talked about it just in passing uh every time i travel especially i always tell him like yeah just watch the first take on the uh, hotel TV. And he's like, always asking me, are you joking? Is it ironic? He's like, no, it's one of the most comforting things in the world. Like, uh, for, for whatever reason, uh, Stephen A. Smith's voice is like a bomb to me. So uh, uh, I, uh, it was just kind of something that we had in our back pocket. He's like, you should write about that at some point. Uh, there was like a first kind of round of Stephen A. profiles, as you mentioned in your piece, like in August 2005, yeah. There was a moment where he was in Sports Illustrated. Carl uh, Taro Greenfield did a piece on him, and I went back and read it after reading your story. And it's really interesting to go back and look at it. And the thing that stuck out to me is that Mark Shapiro, who is a, an executive at ESPN from an earlier era, talks about how when he brought up the idea of hiring Stephen A. at ESPN, everybody at the network said – they hated him. There were 28 people no in the room and they were all vehement. No way. Never, never. Right. And Shapiro goes, oh, well, obviously I had to <laughs> hire him, which, you know, right. he's kind of positioned in the story as just like this morally bankrupt network executive who'll do anything for ratings. But it just reminded me of 
again, like if we're in this like strange new respect era, just how hated he was and how polarizing he was back then. Yeah, I mean, and it was as that, you know, as that story kind of illustrates, it was in some ways more polarizing within ESPN than it even was yeah. outside of ESPN because ESPN's um especially sort of the 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 sports center descended uh i guess you could call it the establishment within ESPN my sense in reporting this piece was that um those people have had more trouble um accepting Stephen A's prominence than you know than audiences there are people who certainly tune into first take because they hate Stephen A and they like want grist for that for that mill and which makes all sense in the world but there are people who kind of revere the idea of ESPN that has the guy behind the desk um, sort of genteely going through, maybe with a little bit of irony, but certainly with a sort of some kind of reserve going through sports highlights and things like this, where uh, several people described first take at, to me as a sort of comparably a wild, wild west, that it's just this place where people are like shooting off ridiculous things. Um, and Stephen A., like, even before First Take, kind of epitomized that approach, which um, I think the people at ESPN were always kind of like, uh, that's not what we do. I think it was interesting um, in your piece how you mentioned he has uh, these kind of ambitions above and beyond First Take and, and his radio, um, two hours of radio show, et cetera. And he was saying that yeah. um, you know, even hosting Sports Center is up there, and he got to host some special edition Sports Centers before the NBA Finals. And that just seems funny to me because doesn't First Take kill Sports Center in the ratings? Yeah, First Take kills everything in the ratings. But I don't think. But Stephen A. To my mind, is he's a very competitive guy, and to him, the success of First Take uh, is kind of. You know when an athlete wears weights while they work out? And mm-hmm. they say, well, imagine what I could do without, you know, it's kind of, that's what he sees, I think, his, uh, his, his success like right now. First takes on at noon, dude, and it's killing everything else. Imagine if I was on at prime time. Like, my radio show isn't even on, at, at, on during drive time. Imagine if it was on in mornings or if it was on at 4 p.m. So to him, he, there is a subtle uh, competition that he feels, even with his uh, fellow talent there, I really believe that this is the kind of way that, you know, if you mention another show, he kind of like, he's, he's a very competitive guy. I think his, that, that's part of his ambition. It, it, it seems like the answer would be just to have him on 24 hours a day, because I think he'd gladly do that. <laughs> <laughs> he, I mean, I think you could literally have a Stephen A. cam, and it would be like, I mean, it would just be ESPN SAS, and it would be like, it'd be the highest rated thing you've ever Well, you've after, ever after the LeBron to the Lakers announcement, there's a video that I just watched yesterday that's him on Periscope where it's just him like yeah. in like kind of a t-shirt just cackling. He just like <laughs> like he just turned on the camera and he was it was like this response to LeBron is already in progress yeah. and it's just like I imagine that he is just literally talking 24 hours a day and you'd like capture it really well in the lead your piece yeah. about how he's like talking about how almond milk gives you man boobs and so he stopped drinking it and there's like the famous David Roth tweet I don't know Vincent if you if you're a fan of the tweet uh where, it's it's an amazing tweet where uh as, as Roth wrote uh it's a dialogue between a PF Chang's waiter 
who's reciting right. uh, specials. And then Stephen A. says, to me, that's preposterous. Crab Rangoon, things of that nature. Uh, right. <laughs> can you just give us a little bit of a sense of what it's like to be in Stephen A. Smith's presence as he's talking about almond milk with the same kind of ferocity uh, that he, that he <laughs> you know, talks about anything else? It's, it's truly amazing. I mean, what he, he's always asked, and it's always asked of the people who write about him. I learned this while writing about him. The, the first thing anybody asks you is, is he really like that in real life? Does he walk around like that? And the answer is like, sort of. He's not as loud, and he doesn't get as worked up as he has sort of perfected doing uh, on first take. But he certainly um, he has the same facility with just like generating opinions as like he just is an opinion machine you throw something his way and it you know it he breaks down both sides of it and he takes a side it's a skill that i think comes through so much of doing that um well so he does that all day and if it's something that has to do with him right like i later on in the piece i talk about how he just gets really worked up talking about how people uh, call him a hack or um, sort of that's the best way to get him to talk about himself. Sometimes he can work himself up to like truly first take levels, but that's when it's like sort of more personal. But it's sort of amazing. You're just there. The, the trouble with writing about him is that you could easily, there's an easily, uh, you could easily, just as easily write a version of this piece that's just you being a stenographer all day, right? Like just quote after quote. I can only imagine transcribing it I have um, so I have one gripe with your profile, and that is I had no idea that he had a recurring um, role on General <laughs> Hospital as Brick, the security <laughs> consultant. And I learned that yeah. through your profile. So if I hadn't read it, there's a legitimate chance I would have been just having General Hospital on in the background one day, or you know, at the gym it would be on one of the treadmills, <laughs> and I would have seen <laughs> Stephen A. Smith walk on and be totally stunned and surprised by that. And sadly, that moment is now uh, taken away from me. But um, do you have any background on how that came to be? I mean, that's just insane to me. It's so funny. They reached out to him. The producers reached out to him. And first he did a, a bit part that wasn't the one, this recurring role where he's like, um, he's a surveillance es- expert in the employ of Sonny Corinthos, who is the uh, the lead character on General Hospital. I think this is my understanding. But it sort of happened in a way of he just puts things out into the world and people are like, oh, Stephen A. Smith, you know, likes our show. We should get him on the show. Because, again, like, they understand. And I think this is something that he's learned partially because of the show, is that he's learned, just as as the producers of General Hospital have, like, the the aspects of camp that people like in their performance, you know? He's the kind of guy who I think just, like, calls things into being, you know, it's hilarious. You mentioned in the piece, one of the moments where um, Smith has come in for uh, the most criticism, which was in 2014 when, um, you know, the Ray Rice situation happened. He said on first take, let's make sure we don't do anything to provoke wrong actions, kind of implying that, uh, Rice's then fiance had provoked him into assaulting her, which was just like a horrifying and uh, disgusting thing to say. He was suspended for a week, um, and he says, in you know, in in the piece that you know he was raised by five women. Women, I would never hit a woman. I would never condone domestic violence. Period. But 
you know, something that you didn't mention is his continual defenses of Floyd Mayweather, which um, is a phenomenon that's been going on for years and years and years where he's minimized Floyd's well-documented history of domestic abuse. I'm wondering if that's something that you discussed with him or thought about. You know, I I brought up the Ray Rice thing, hoping that it would uh, lead into some of this other territory. I mean, I think it's under underlaying the, this kind of whole conversation is the extent to which sports TV is like this weird male and sometimes um, uh, I don't... <laughs> I don't know if toxic is the word, but it's there's certainly this zone where uh, the the kind of morality that pertains elsewhere doesn't always pertain in really kind of strange ways. Um, we didn't actually talk as much about Floyd, but I think it's totally right about him, and I think it's just one of his biggest blind spots. Like even for example, like what you just mentioned, he like never has just been like, "Sorry, that was wrong." I realize like that's there's no way in which a woman can provoke a man. I can't even imagine what I was thinking, right? Like, he always says, I was misunderstood. Um, and so I think that the lesson for him there was like, don't say that, but I'm not sure that, um, I'm not sure that he totally, uh, that he totally gets it. Yeah, it kind of seems born out of a, another kind of uh, criticism that dovetails uh, of Stephen A. with this is that he's too chummy with athletes and he can't give, you know, objective criticisms of, of people like Mayweather because he wants to be their friends or he likes being in their, their orbit. Yet he also yeah. um, has these kinds of bizarre personal feuds with specific athletes like Kevin Durant when he had that famous, you know, rant against, against him. Yeah. How does, how, do the, how does he pick and choose who he wants to be friends with and who he kind of uses as these foils for first take and for his uh, monologues? Yeah. It's funny. I think that this has everything to do with his personal style, right? Like, even before he was on television, he was kind of, or before he was as much on television as he is now, I should say, he was kind of known as a friend of Allen Iverson's. Um, mm-hmm. But what that did, when the when the Sixers made that uh, a one run to the finals, was that he was one of the better sourced journalists anywhere in the NBA. And like, that's why he started getting on TV because he knew everything about the Sixers locker room. And it was very explicitly because he was fr- like Stephen A calls him. I mean, uh, Iverson to this day calls Stephen A Smith his big brother. Um, and so that's what you have to give Stephen A as, as a journalist. You can't deny the fact that he has been a, like he has been even up until 2010 when LeBron, uh, announced the decision. Stephen A was the first person that came out and was like, he's definitely going to Miami. Like he does have sources and it is premised more on, um, I guess what we would call friendship than it is on some, uh, enterprising gadfly model. Right. So Vincent, that, um, Durant, Stephen A Smith feud started in 2015 when Stephen A said that he thought that, um, He's that he was hearing that if Kevin Durant doesn't stay in Oklahoma City, that he was going to go to L.A. And Durant responded by saying, I don't talk to Stephen A. Smith at all. Nobody in my family, my friends, they don't talk to Stephen A. Smith. So he's lying. And so that's where it started. And I think that 
you can see kind of like the weaker sore spots with both guys. Like Duran is a very sensitive guy, as we know. And Stephen A. definitely does not like people to impugn his journalistic chops and wants to remind people that he was a beat writer. Right. And uh, yeah, lying, I think, is the the thing that... Yeah, journalists don't like it when you say they're lying. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, of course, Stephen A. did like, you know, maintain, as he often does, maintain sort of a kind of some kind of qualified zone around himself. Like, I'm hearing could be anybody, right? It, he doesn't, he's not necessarily saying that Kevin Durant's best friend called him and told him that, or that his, that Kevin Durant himself told him that, or his mom told him that. But, you know, hearing is a pretty broad, you know, utterance, I guess, you know, so it's, it, it's just one of those things where I just think he got the lying thing, got to, like you say, like his, sorest spot in terms of his criticism. He doesn't care if people dislike him. He doesn't care if people think he's a buffoon. Like, he's heard all that stuff, and when you bring that stuff up to him, it bounces right off of him. He talk, he's, you know, he can point to the scoreboard, which is the ratings, and he does not care about that. It's kind of interesting that, you know, this, this feud is essentially about Stephen A. getting something wrong, but I didn't remember the specifics. All I remembered was, oh, he had an argument with Kevin Durant, so therefore right. they're kind of almost equals in this uh equation, um, even though one is a, you know, superstar athlete, the other one's someone who's reporting on him and reporting something that was happened, you know, proven to be wrong or turned out to be wrong. And there's also that thing of like predicting what athletes are going to do in the future. <laughs> it's always safe because like, you know, you could have still heard that. He could have been thinking mm-hmm. that and then changed his mind. It's like at the end of the day, it's, 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 it's just a thing to say on TV. And I think Stephen A wants to remind athletes that that's part of his job, you know, there's a moment in my piece where he talks about uh, using, again, General Hospital as his model. He talks, Shaq is mad at him about something that he has um, said about him, you know, some criticism. And he reminds Shaq, like, hey, do you know that in the, even if something bad happens in a soap opera, we all know that the hero's going to live at the end? It's like, my job is to make this interesting, even though maybe you're going to win. It's not, you know, he's trying to understand make athletes understand his part in this. And so when they are that negative toward him, I think it does kind of hurt his feelings because I think he sees himself as part of the ecosystem that makes the game fun. Yeah, I mean, and to wrap this up and to bring it back to what I was saying in the beginning, as far as how he makes it interesting, there's a great contrast, I think, to be made with Skip Bayless, who, you know, he definitely makes it interesting. I mean, I think he comes off as an asshole and the stuff the, <laughs> the stuff that he's saying just feels like kind of mean or and just the the way that he approaches it and i think it's partly due to like you know reading about skip and how he like eats chicken and broccoli every night there's just like a fundamental like sadness to him yeah. and to what he does on television to me and with Stephen A you know for all the faults that we've talked about there's like a joy in the performance. And there's a joy, I think, in him doing what he does that really comes through in your piece. Yeah, I, undeniable. He, he he loves doing his job and um, he seems to only want to do more of it. Vincent Cunningham is a staff writer for The New Yorker. His profile of Stephen A. Smith is headlined, Stephen A. Smith Won't Stop Talking. Vincent, thank you so much. Thank you.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So Stefan and I talked to John Wertheim last week before Stefan went away to Iceland. And we talked about, as you'll hear in my intro in a second, um, this documentary about Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer. We had a huge amount of hubris and thinking, oh, there's nothing, uh, nothing could possibly happen. Federer, Nadal, by the time we, we air this on uh, Monday, July uh, the 9th, they'll both st- still be in the tournament. And you know what, Nick? Hubris rewarded. Always be overconfident. That's what it, that's what I have to tell you. So Nadal, Federer, both made it to the Wimbledon quarterfinals on Monday. They could meet in uh, the final on Sunday. Um, and here we go. Here's our conversation, uh, me and Stefan and John Wertheim, uh, that was recorded last week. As of July 6th, 2008, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal had won 14 of the previous 16 major championships. The two men had met in the previous four French Open finals, with Nadal winning all four, and in the previous two Wimbledon finals, with Federer winning both of those. The match they'd play at Wimbledon that July, which Nadal won in five sets, would change the course of their rivalry and would instantly be celebrated as the greatest tennis match ever played. That match is the subject of a new documentary, Strokes of Genius, which debuted last week on the Tennis Channel and which features interviews with Nadal and Federer, plus their coaches and trainers and relatives and legends including John McEnroe, Bjorn Borg, Martina Navratilova, and Chris Evert. Joining us now to discuss the documentary and the Federer-Nadal rivalry, which is now in its 15th year, is John Wertheim. John is an executive editor and senior writer at Sports Illustrated, the author of the book Strokes of Genius, and the executive producer of the documentary based on that book. Hey, guys. Great to have you back, my friends. Um, and it was a real pleasure to watch this documentary and to see athletes who are still, you know, at the top of their sport after all of these years be so reflective during their careers. I think it's a total credit to those guys, and I think you're absolutely right. Uh, we, we, we all love 30 for 30s, but there, there is a big difference between athletes sort of playing retrospective and uh, rehashing these, these career moments versus athletes who are absolutely in the throes, in this case, of this rivalry. I mean, they come to Wimbledon one and two in the world, and they've won alternately. They, they've won the last six majors, and they still agreed to, to sit down, and, and I thought both of them, uh, in, in very different ways, went pretty, pretty deep on both this match, but I think more importantly on their relationship and the dynamics of rivalry. And I, I think it, it says a great deal about them that even at this stage in their careers, they'd be willing to do this. It is really striking, and that was the first thing I was going to bring up to Josh, just how introspective and analytical both of them are about their place in the game and their relationship to each other. And I think my favorite recognition, um, John, was, was Federer's that after losing to Nadal in this match 10 years ago at Wimbledon, the realization that that Nadal was necessary to him 
as an athlete, that he had been unbeatable, that Nadal came along with a game that challenged Federer to adjust, which he had never had to do before. And Federer, like in real time, understanding that and modifying his game so that we could have this 15-year rivalry. Yeah, exactly. There, there's a great line in the movie where someone said, it was as if Nadal were created for the express purpose of taking down Federer. I mean, <laughs> you couldn't fashion a game uh, that was more, more unfavorable to Federer, who had, who had been ruling the roost and had been this, this sort of benevolent despot, and everybody loves Roger, and the, the runner-up would always say, you know, too good, I'm playing for second place, and here comes the Spaniard, and he doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, hue to, to the niceties of tennis, and he's a left-hander. Tactically, it's different. Uh, sort of philosophically, it's different. And you're right. I think Federer, and he admits this in the film, it took him a while to warm up to this relationship. This is not somebody yeah. who necessarily relished the whole idea of, of challenge and rivalry. And after that, you know, he, he would win Wimbledon, and Nadal would win the clay events and the French Open, and there seemed to be this almost a sort of... Uh, uh, you know, so sort of like a custody dispute. There's sort of this unspoken agreement. And when Nadal violated that and won Wimbledon and beat the great Roger Federer at the All England Club where he'd won five straight years, I think Federer had, you're, you're absolutely right, I think Federer had this sort of fight-or-flight moment and said, you know what, I really need to reassess how I feel about this rivalry because this guy is, is coming and taking what's mine. I don't know what you guys thought, but I was looking at this as just another piece of the Federer-Nadal rivalry. And I thought Nadal won the documentary. Nadal, um, you know, was... I, I guess we're not as used to hearing Nadal kind of go as deep. Like, Federer is famously open in press conferences and on-court interviews. And, like, we're grateful for it as fans of his and as journalists that we get to hear so much of his thought process. But Nadal, in this documentary, speaking in his native Spanish, I thought went to places I never heard him go before. Um, and I have a, I pulled a clip. This was my favorite Nadal moment from Strokes of Genius. If we can play that now. No, no, no puedo saber lo que Tony pensaba decirme en aquel momento o no, pero yo estaba preparado para, para asumir el, el reto y para asumir el, la adversidad en todo momento. Y, y esto fue lo que le dije a Tony, ¿no? Yo no, yo no voy a fallar. Federer podía ganarme la final, pero yo no iba a perder la final. Si el otro me gana, me gana. Pero yo no voy a perder. All right, before I explain what Rafa was saying in the clip, let me just give a little bit of backstory on the match. Uh, Nadal had won the first two sets, uh, 6-4, 6-4. Federer had come back um, after Nadal had uh, match points to win the third and the fourth sets, both in tiebreakers. Um, and then there was a rain delay as, uh, as there, there were multiple rain delays in this match. So in the fifth set, they're going back to the locker room. Nadal's coach, his uncle Tony, is like, all right, I got to pump this guy up. He's just, he's blown a two-set lead. You know, what do I, what do I got to say to this guy? And this is, you know, what Nadal says in that clip is, I don't know what my uncle Tony was going to say to me, but I was determined in that moment that I was not going to lose that match, that maybe Federer was going to win it, but I was not going to lose. And the way that he said it, um, I thought gave like incredible insight and also just being kind of taken into that moment in the locker room, I thought was one of the highlights of the movie for me. I think that was a great 
encapsulation of Nadal. And you sort of intuitively, you watch him play and you sense that's his mentality, but to hear him articulate it, which I I don't think he'd ever done before. And I I do think it helped to interview him in Spanish when it's, you know, the, the press conference in Cincinnati or when you grab him for five minutes in a locker room, you don't necessarily have uh, an interpreter, you can't use subtitles, this was different. And getting the doll in, in the comfort of, of Spanish, um, I, I think we got a level of depth and introspection that we don't necessarily get in English. Um, it's funny, I mean, Federer at some level is a victim of his own success, not just in tennis, but in press conferences and self-expression. And I think he, he wears that cloak very comfortably of, of being a spokesman. Nadal, less so, but I, but I agree. I mean, I think Nadal was, uh, really went to, uh, to, to a place that I didn't necessarily expect him to go. And I do think the luxury of interviewing him in Spanish. Also, we, you know, we went to Mallorca, so there was a yeah. sort of a comfort, comfort with setting. Also but the luxury I, I of think, interviewing him about a match that he won. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, Federer, keep in mind, lost this match. I mean, one of the more stinging moments of his career, this, this really, uh, it, when they do the Federer career retrospective, this, this will not be one of the happier moments. And I think both of them, I, I think Federer is at a place where he understands in, the, in sort of the broader mosaic of tennis the importance of this match. But I also think that both of them don't, don't just appreciate rivalry as a concept, but I think they both have a real appreciation for the dynamic of theirs. And I think they both take pleasure in the fact that uh, they have this opponent and they have this nemesis, this other player to whom they're yoked, and yet it's civil, and they motivate each other, and sometimes Nadal goes on a run, and Federer's beaten Nadal the last five times they've played, but I I think they both realize that ultimately they're much better for the existence of the other one. That was one of my favorite parts of of the movie as well, John, Uh, and not just as it it, uh, um, refers to Nadal and Federer, but there's a sequence on the compassion and bonding among rivals in tennis. Um, Chris and Martina on the women's side and Borg and McEnroe on the men's side were the ones that um, you focused on. And when McEnroe starts talking about Bjorn Borg retiring early at age 27, he's on the verge of tears. And McEnroe, right, who's in in our image is this fiery bastard screaming on the court, is wistfully sentimental about the fact that he lost his challenger. He lost his rival and what that meant to him says he would as, have been a, happy a competitor. To, says he would have been happy to be number two in the world if Borg yeah. was still playing. Yeah. Right. And, right. and I think those, you know, with those windows of, of introspection into athletes, into great athletes are rare and, it, so it wasn't just Natal and Federer who were offering up some examples of that in, in, in this movie, John. It was these other athletes, too. And you also – and I think that this ties in with it – is just how lonely tennis can be at the top. That it's a one-on-one sport. You're out there with your rival. You go back to the locker room. And as I think Chris Everett said in the documentary, you're sitting in the same locker room as your bitter rival. And at that point, the match doesn't matter. It becomes about compassion. And I don't know whether that was true for Nadal and Federer sitting in the locker room after saying Nadal beats Federer at Wimbledon for the first time. But for some athletes, it is. Yeah, I, I think some of this, I think you're absolutely right. I think some of this is, is unique to tennis, which is a strange sport in that regard. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, here, here these guys are playing this global sporting event, and never mind before and after the match, even during these rain delays, they're both retreating to the same. This is not a big room. You know, this, this is not uh, the, the Staples Center locker room. I mean, this is a little 
Cubby Hall, and here they are in the middle of this final, this tense match, and they're sitting across from each other. But, no, I mean, I, th- I think motivation is part of it. You know, McEnroe and Borg, great rival. They're still making movies about it 35 years later. They only play each other 14 times. So I, I think there's also a longevity here, and I think that uh, no one thought Roger Federer, no one thought a, a tennis player would be number one in the world, almost 37 years old. Nobody thought Nadal with that physical punishing, violent style would still be going strong at 32. And I think the fact that, as you say, this has been you know, a 15-year rivalry, which is, is remarkable in, in tennis in particular in an individual sport. I, th- I think that plays into it uh, as well. So the thing that's always bug- bugged me about how this match has been acclaimed by the John Wertheim types as the, <laughs> as the greatest ever was that the experience watching this match was pretty miserable. So this was before DVR at least was a presence in the Levine household. And these rain delays were brutal. Like this was an all day long thing. It ruined lunch plans. It ruined dinner plans. But I'm like being a little bit facetious, but I wonder, John, if that at all like factors in for you when thinking back on this match, because when it's portrayed in this like 90 minute package, there's only so much that you can do to like represent what it was like to actually experience that. That was like a really long day. And for me, that actually meant the match wasn't as good as like, you know, the Australian Open final in 2017, where they just like played the whole thing through and the drama just like never stopped. Oh, that's that's it. I mean, on on 4th of July weekend, no less. Um, (laughs) That's that's interesting. I mean, here it was almost as though uh, this was sort of the symphony, and then the rain delays were uh, these these added rests. You got to think about the, the viewers at home, John. The uh, well, you got you got John McEnroe and Ted Robinson ad libbing uh, while they yeah. drive the courts. These are like the uh, this is again the, the, this is the tarp at City Field. But um, you know, the, the one of the ironies is that this was the last match on center court before there was a roof. So had this happened a year hmm. later, A, you wouldn't have had rain delays, and B, you had, wouldn't have to worry about darkness. But and you would have had I, Federer you know, playing indoors. He probably would have won. <laughs> in, indoor match. Uh, Federer's favorite and Nadal's least favorite. But, you know, the, the, the greatest match of all time, it's just like the, the, the writer doesn't write the headline. That's a, um, I'm not sure that was my designation, but I stand by that. I, I just think it all added to the rhythms of this match, the uncertainty, again, the fact that these guys had to go back to the same dressing room, I think is just remarkable. You know, a middle school basketball team wouldn't think of getting dressed in the same room as the opposition. And here are these two guys sitting on two benches across from each other. And uh, I, I just think that the, you know, the, the sets were 6-4-6-4-7-6-7-6 and then 9-7. Um, to, to me, that's, I, I stand by the greatest of all time. I, um, my apologies for, for rain delays that would have condensed it and freed up time. You you were five hours, you know, the That's five true. hours ahead. It did not you ruin had, your uh, dinner. I'm sorry. Exactly. It did not ruin your dinner. Well, you know, exactly. other things got pushed back. You know, you know how it can go on a on a Sunday, Stefan. We're we're busy people. Um the other thing that I wanted to um mention that just really struck me was Nadal saying that Federer's famous backhand pass down Eight seven and the fourth set tiebreak was the worst moment of his life. <laughs> of his life, <laughs> I know that seemed like a little it's bit of an exaggeration, but um, that in a match that Federer lost, I think just because of 
the way that Federer is, you know, seen by the world, that backhand pass to save match point, I think for me, is like the standout moment in the match. What what was it for you, John? Um, no, you're, you're, I, I think that's the one. And part, part of this, honestly, is uh, you, you learn a lot about making TV and making documentaries. And if this were print, you would simply use the quote. Um, as it turned out, it, it came out a, a little bit muddled. But Nadal's point was he had a forehand that he had lined up. And he's thinking to himself, if I convert this forehand that I've hit innumerable times, if I convert this, I am the Wimbledon champion. Yep. And he lines it up and takes a whack. And wouldn't you know it, the ball comes whistling by him. Federer hits this, this unbelievable backhand that I think sort of was, was filled with symbolism as well as with just this gorgeous piece of shot making. And at that moment, p- part of you said, oh, my gosh, this, this Federer, we, we always knew he was a great player, but maybe we didn't give him enough credit as a fighter. Maybe this guy sort of has, you know, it was Matt Vilander who a, f- a few weeks before had said he, he doubted whether Federer, you know, Nadal has much bigger balls. Um, and this, this was Federer uh, showing, you know, testicular fortitude. But you also at that moment said, oh, my gosh, if Federer wins this match and Rafael Nadal has a forehand to win Wimbledon and doesn't convert it, and loses in the final to Federer three straight times, but this one holding match point, will he ever be the same player? And I think, you know, we talk about rivalries in other sports, and even with Borg and McEnroe, there's sort of this, this element often of, of destruction, and after the, the final match, after the rubber match, Mickey Ward and Arturo Gatti, I mean, pick your, pick your rivalry. Often in an individual sport, the loser is never the same again. And I think part of what makes this so heartening um, Federer won the very next major. I mean, here, here everybody left Wimbledon 2008 wondered if the king had been deposed, and there was all sorts of uh, you know, tortured analogies to, uh, to, to overthrowing and coups and putches, and there's a, there's a new king, but Roger Federer won the U.S. Open a few weeks later. He won Wimbledon in 2009. He won the French Open in 2009. Um, Nadal won the Australian Open. So in many ways, the fact that this, you had the seminal match, but uh, it, it did not sort of neuter the loser, it in a way sort of emboldened both of them, I, I think was, um, you know, I mean, I, I think it's another special part of this rivalry. The documentary is called Strokes of Genius. It's in heavy rotation on Tennis Channel. It's based on John Wertheim's book, Strokes of Genius. John, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for Afterballs. And over the weekend, Nick, you wrote about the English football. Do we have to say football anthem? It's been recording. This podcast is recorded in America, so we can say soccer. All right. The soccer anthem, football is coming home. Football. <laughs> um, and how it's kind of become like a meme and a joke and how the English players are um, – you know, in interviews, they're answering questions about whether football is coming home. Let's begin by just listening to a little uh, excerpt from the tune. Football's coming home. It's coming home. It's coming home. 
So, Nick, tell us a little bit about the background of this song. The English FA, the governing body that um, kind of runs English soccer before the 1996 European Championships, which were being held in England, commissioned uh, a song, an anthem for that tournament and for the national team. Uh, and so they got uh, two comedians and a Britpop group named uh, The Lightning Seed to record Football's Coming Home. Or it's, the, the song is actually called Three Lions. But the um, chorus, which is, is coming home, football's coming home, uh, has kind of become this, first became a chant and then has morphed since then. Um, but the song itself is very defeatist. Uh, it's all about how England always loses and how that they uh, remain optimistic, even though they know the team is going to fail, probably on penalty kicks. Which is a lie. Um, they don't remain optimistic, as discussed earlier no. in the show. Exactly. The, the, the song is... It was recorded before the uh, 1996 European Championships that were in England, uh, and that tournament, of course, England lost on penalties to Germany in the semifinals. But the genius of the song is the fact that it's uh, not past tense. It's always about maybe one day it will be coming home, maybe one day we will be winning. So in the 22 years since it was recorded, it has uh, taken on a life of its own because they have not won yet. Uh and maybe they would never will. We'll see. Um, should we do lightning seeds as a as a tribute to uh, to the artists? I think that's appropriate. Although it's the, the two comedians wrote the lyrics and the lightning seeds uh, did the music, but that's enough because uh, I don't really I'm not familiar with the the work of of any of the parties involved you know, beyond Three Lions. David uh, Badiel and Frank Skinner being the comedians, but let's do lightning seeds. It's a catchier. Uh, Catch your name. Nick, what is your uh, lightning seed for the week? Oh, I want to talk about diving uh, in soccer. I don't mind diving. Uh, I feel like people who harp on about um, the human element in other sports get very upset about diving in soccer. It seems like that's the kind of person that would do that. Yet diving is the most human element you can have. It involves lying, involves deceit, and uh, it involves a little bit of comedy. It's, uh, it's like the uh, uh, full spectrum of Shakespearean uh, emotion and uh, artistry. Now, <clears throat> beyond that, I know people think that there should be harsher punishments for diving. You are supposed to yellow card someone who simulates uh, being fouled in the box. Yet that, I don't think that's happened yet in this World Cup. I know... In the Belgium-Brazil uh, game, Neymar, who's uh, been kind of the diver number one in the 2018 World Cup, <clears throat> um, really did dive in the box late in the game, but the referee just kind of waved him up and did not give him a card. I think that's pretty appropriate punishment because what is more humiliating than having a referee, a referee of all people, dismissively just kind of brush you aside, say, get up, you're not very hurt. But I want to talk about the one time that someone actually was punished harshly for diving. And that came in 1989 when Brazil and Chile were, uh, had a winner goes through to the World Cup qualifying match. It was held in Brazil. And after Brazil took a one nothing lead in the second half, Roberto Rojas, Chile's goalkeeper, uh, fell to the ground. Um, and he lied there for a long time. There were flares that had been thrown by Brazilian fans onto the pitch. And he had said that he got hit in the head with a flare. What's more, he was gushing blood from his forehead. <clears throat> and the Chilean players in protest said, we can't keep playing this game here. This is 
completely unsafe conditions. And so they stretchered him off the field. The players left in protest and demanded that a, another game be played in a neutral uh, field so that they would, you know, could start again and not have to worry about these horrible fans throwing uh, firecrackers at their, their goalkeeper. The next day, officials reviewed the video evidence and found that a firecracker, while it was thrown near Rojas, it didn't hit him. It landed a meter away. What he had done was hid a razor blade in his glove, in his goalkeeping glove, and sliced his forehead open. Uh, the idea was that they wanted to have a game on a neutral field so they had a better chance of making the World Cup. And after going down one nothing, they figured, you know, that's the best way we're going to do it. The, the coach was in on it. The, the team trainer was in on it. And in response, FIFA banned Roberto Rojas for life from soccer. It ended his career right then and there. Um, the ban was eventually lifted in 2001, but he was already, you know, way past his, his playing career by then. So for that dive uh, against Brazil in 1989, Roberto Rojas had his career ended. The moral of the story is dive as much as you want, but just don't bring wrestling keyfabe gabbit into it. Um, don't uh, blade yourself during my afterball, Nick. I mean, I know that you like to bring uh, attention to yourself, but we have limits. I am a uh, prima donna to the point of self-injury. Uh, and Josh, what is your lightning seed for today? My lightning seed for today of all days is uh, part of my two-part series of Josh thinks deeply about penalty shootouts once every two to four years. Uh, part one last week being about uh, cinematography. Part two this week being maybe choreography, I would say. Uh, we'll get to it in a second. But first, a little recap, Nick, of the penalty shootouts from this World Cup. Uh, there have been four. First was Spain-Russia. It was 1-1 after regulation, 1-1 after extra time, and Russia won on penalties. Croatia-Denmark was 1-1 after regulation, 1-1 after extra time, and Croatia won on penalties. Mm -hmm. Colombia-England was 1-1 after regulation, 1-1 <gasps> after extra time, and England uh -huh. won on penalties. Oh, okay. And then Russia-Croatia, 1-1 after regulation, and they actually scored in extra time. It was 2-2 after extra time, and Croatia won on penalties. But uh, three out of four games, no goals in extra time, and then it was settled in the shootout. Because of that, Martin Rogers of USA Today wrote a piece arguing, let's save us all some time and just go straight to a shootout. Uh, that's a bad idea, Martin, if I can uh, use your first name. It's not a bad idea because extra time is sometimes good, as it was in the 2014 World Cup final when Mario Goetze scored in the 113th minute to lead Germany over Argentina. Rather, it's a bad idea to just go straight to a shootout because extra time and the penalty shootout actually do work well together. It's just that they need to be arranged differently. In 2016, Dario Perkins wrote a piece for Slate that proposed what I think is a brilliant solution. Um, but before we get to the solution, let's restate the problem. At the time that Perkins wrote the piece, 13 Champions League finals since 1983 had finished in a tie after regulation, and 11 of those 13 uh, ended up going to penalties. As Perkins noted, and has been the case in this World Cup, although extra time is supposed to be exciting, the players are tired. They often seem content to play out the extra 30 minutes at three-quarter speed. They settle for the draw, and then they try to win on penalties. 
So here's Perkins's idea, and I'm quoting here. Play the penalties before extra time. If one team outscores the other in the subsequent 30 minutes of open play, then that result will trump the outcome of the penalty kicks. If extra time ends in a draw, then the game goes to the penalty winner. What is your gut reaction to that, Nick Green? Well, I think it's clever, uh, but with the kind of narrative arc of a game, having the most climactic part happen after regulation but before extra time kind of throws everything out of whack. Uh, Well, it just depends on, uh, you know, obviously you have a very traditional view of the game, Nick, and a very traditional view, conventional view of story structure. (laughs) That's that's what they say about me. Also, uh, I'm going to give you a lame argument that uh, is probably not even a good argument, but I I think uh, I should force you to defend anyway. What if someone gets injured during the penalties? What if someone gets injured in the penalties? You know, I'll let FIFA sort that out because they're generally like good and smart about That's these things. Point. I'm I'm sure that I'm sure that they've considered that. Um, you know, just sub some somebody in. I'm sure it'll, I'm sure it'll be fine. Extra sub. They, there's an extra sub for uh, for extra time. So uh, I like that now. That's a good rule. Yeah, you get the fourth substitution. Um, the other point that Perkins made, which I think will win you over, is mm. that. Um, you always there is not any way that a penalty shootout can end. It's impossible for it to end without somebody being the goat because somebody has to miss for there to be a winner and and penalties are I guess it could just go on until the you know sun burns out. But typically in, in games that we've seen, somebody misses and that's uh, you know determines the winner of a penalty shootout. It's unfair after a whole long game that's you know soccer is a team game allegedly that the spotlight ends up being on this one poor soul who misses a penalty. And That's what it's about, baby. <laughs> you got to separate the winners and the loser chokers. But as we saw in the Croatia-Denmark game, um, Luka Modric got a penalty in extra time. He missed, was saved by uh, Schmeichel, the, the Danish keeper. And all the Croatian players talked afterwards about how they were so motivated to win because they wanted they didn't want Modric to feel bad. And so just think of how there's going to be like supercharged energy to win these games after after the penalty shootout because what's going to happen is all right, let's imagine England loses on uh, on penalties to Germany. I can't and imagine some, that. And some and some hypothetical future game. Um England is going to be just like driving for a goal like crazy in the extra time period, knowing that the only way that they can win is by scoring a goal. And just the drama, I know that you like the climax of like just seeing some dude like walk glumly off the field, but the drama of just watching them press for a goal as opposed to the usual slog of extra time it would be amazing. Something tells me that if England lost to uh, Germany or lost penalty shootout to Germany before extra time, uh, <laughs> they wouldn't be heroically charging at the Germans' goal. I think uh, I think the uh, the general demeanor would be pretty depressing. Well, I think I, I that that's what you'd imagine. I'd like to see that uh, that tested in the laboratory of real life. But um, and, this this maybe falls in the category of something that's uh, fun and whimsical, but will never happen. I say just bring back the original MLS penalty kicks where the 
taker starts at midfield and the goalkeeper can charge out of uh, his net at any time he wants. And they basically have a sort of hot potato uh, kind of game of chicken with two players sprinting directly at each other. That was terrible for injuries. Uh, it took too long, but it was the most exciting thing in the history of the MLS. Uh, on that note of praise of MLS, that is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Our intern is Meredith Ellison. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Nick Green, I am Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.